All right, well, wherever and whenever you are, I'm glad that you're here today. And um, since that first video was made, the very first one, Juneteenth actually is a federal holiday now. I think that happened last year. And so I want to wish you the happiest of Father's Days, and I want to wish you a very happy Juneteenth. I'm glad that you are here to worship with us today. Um, we, uh, I found out, so I heard this the other day, and it just kind of blew my mind. Somebody once told me um, when they were, you know, leaving ministry, um, they, had, they had a couple ask them, they were like, you know, what, what can we do for the next pastor to, to show them, you know, that we care? And, and this person was like, you know, just, just show up. Be the, be the people who, who show up, right? Um, especially on Father's Day. So I heard the other day, and I don't know if this is true because I haven't looked it up yet, so you need to look it up, but I heard that Father's Day is the 20th most celebrated holiday in the United States, the 20th most celebrated holiday in the United States of America. Number one is, guess what? You know what it is? Guess what number one is? Christmas. Number two is Mother's Day, which means that Jesus comes first, followed by your mom, right? And then Father's Day is number 20. And so I'm, I'm like the person who's, who's where I learned this from, and I told you I didn't look it up, but they're like, I can't even think of 17 other holidays, and I can't. So we tried in the first service. We came up with about six of them, which included Arbor Day. And if you don't know what Arbor Day is, you're probably in great company. But it's celebrated more than Father's Day. It's higher on the list than Father's Day. So Father's Day is also, incidentally, if you don't know um, what, the, what the top three uh, attendance Sundays are in any church, the most attended Sundays in any church, and it's not always a Sunday, but Christmas is usually first, like Christmas Eve is usually first, right? Followed by Mother's Day, followed by Easter, right? Guess what? The, normally the worst attended Sunday in the history of the church is it's Father's Day. So whether you're here in person or you're worshiping online, I'm just really glad that you all uh, are here to join us today. I've got some fun things that I want to tell you about before we get started um, with today's message. But before we even do that, we have some kids going to camp this week. We have, um, I think, what is it, nine? We've got nine children, youth that are going to camp, um, going to Camp Spark and also Youth Force. And I think um, the youth force, the group, leaves today, I believe, and I think Camp Spark leaves tomorrow. And so I'm going to be there to pray with the kids before they roll out tomorrow for camp, but I also want to give us an opportunity to pray together. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you have a kid at your table, child or a youth, one of our youth that's going to camp, I'm going to ask you to just gather around them, put your hands on them, if that's all right with them, ask them first. Put your hand on their shoulder if that's okay with them. And then I'm going to ask you to bow your head and pray silently as I pray for us out loud. So let's do that now. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for each and every one of our children and our youth and the families, God, that are helping them to grow into the people that you are calling them to be, that are helping them to learn more about who you are and more about who they are as they come to learn more about your great love. God, we just pray this week that you would be with them. We pray that you would be with them every step of the journey that they're going to take this week. We give you thanks, God, for all the volunteers and the staff who are working hard to make sure that this week is not only a good experience for them, but a great opportunity to learn more about your great love, a great opportunity to step into your proactive, sacrificial, unconditional love, God, and experience that in a new way for themselves. We give you thanks, God, for their lives. We ask that you would continue to set a path before them and walk the road that you will lead them on together with them as they continue to grow into the people that you're calling them to be. God, this we ask in your holy name. Amen. 
All right, thank you for doing that. Um, if you are here and you want to go to Children's Church, um, Olivia is going to be at the back of the ministry center. She'll be ready to take your kiddos over to the uh, education building so that you can do that. Okay, there are some things I would love for you to put on your radar before we get started. Um, we have been talking, our administrative team has been talking, um, and we've kind of, all throughout the pandemic, you know, we had to change how we do what we do. And Southern Hills went through a lot of changes during that time anyway. And so our post-pandemic church, for several reasons, looks vastly different from our pre-pandemic church. But we want to um, begin to kind of work into some of the fellowship activities that had to be put on hold for those couple of years. So there's going to be some things that are happening this year. I'm excited about them. Obviously, we'll have Vacation Bible School again this year. That's going to happen in July, and it's going to be uh, a Friday and a Saturday event, which I believe is June 22nd, 20, or excuse me, July 22nd and 23rd. And then on July 24th, we're going to celebrate VBS together here, but we're also going to be celebrating the 60th anniversary of Southern Hills United Methodist Church. And we have a great group of people working to make that celebration a cool event. So that is coming up. That's going to just be a one-service kind of a Sunday. We're going to have a church family fun day, I believe, on August the 14th, and that's in the process of being planned right now. That is a Sunday, so um, look forward to that, and we're going to, be, we're going to be planning, I think, some fun activities for that day. We also have some other cool things that we're taking a look at doing, um, things like we'll bring the chili cook-off back this year. It'll probably be in the fall. Uh, I think October is what we're looking at for that. Um, we're talking about having a barbecue, uh, a barbecue competition, like a smoked meat competition, which I think would be a lot of fun. Talking about having a melodrama, and probably also at some point an open mic night here in the ministry center, which would also be a blast. I'm super excited about those things. We're even talking about other fun things today. Even uh, the idea of a trivia night came up, which I think would be an old, a whole lot of fun for us to do. And we're exploring the possibility of having a car show. Um, our Executive Director of Family Ministries, her name is Debbie Schultz. If you have not met her, you need to, make, you need to meet her. She went to go visit um, some family elsewhere and attended the United Methodist Church while she was away, and they were having a car show that weekend, and it was a blast. And so we're taking a look at trying to do some cool things like that. We'll put dates and times out. We'll ask for your help in planning those events, but start putting those on your radar because I think they're going to be some great opportunities to do some fun things together and have some fun fellowship that uh, I know a lot of us have missed throughout the pandemic. All right, I'm going to be starting a, a new series um, next week, a series called The Good Life. It is going to be, I believe it's a, like a five-part series where I'm going to take a look at some of the things I think the scriptures help us to understand about what it means to live into a healthier version of life. How do I step into life and that more abundantly so? And what are some of the key areas of a healthy and abundant life as we understand that from the scriptures? So I uh, hope you'll be a part of that today. I want to share a little bit with you about what I think um, the scriptures help us to understand about what it means to be brave and to be strong. I think that, as I've thought about this over the years, I really believe that some of the most powerful forms of courage are not always the most obvious. The scriptures are holy, and before we consider them, we should pray. Let's do that. God, we are grateful for today and for the opportunity to learn more about who you are and who you're calling us to be. We're grateful today for all of the men in our lives who have helped us to experience your love, for the men who cared enough 
about knowing you and embracing your love, who cared enough about us to give us an example of what your love looks like when it's lived into in a healthy way, whether they were our fathers or not. We give you thanks for the opportunity to worship together today and to be grateful for what it means to be able to celebrate freedom from slavery and oppression. And so as we worship today, as we celebrate today, and as we give thanks today, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our spirits so that as a result of our time together, we might know you better. And this we ask in your name. Amen. I don't know if you ever had the chance to um, hear the story of Dick and Rick Hoyt. Dick died last year at at about the age of 80, but they became famous several years ago because when Dick's son, Dick's son is Rick, right? And when Rick was 15 years old, he came to his dad. His dad had no desire to run, right? Didn't didn't like running, uh, managed to make it into adulthood without running very often, uh, didn't really want to make running a thing in his life. But when his son Rick was 15, he came to his dad and he said, Dad, there is a, a, one of the kids in our school has had a terrible accident and is now a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And they're going to do a, a five-mile fun run to raise money for him, for the family, and I'd like to participate in it if that's okay. And his dad, you know, his son coming to him, right, wanting to do something nice for somebody else would have been enough, except that Dick's son, Rick, was also a quadriplegic. And so he saw, you know, he could see, he said, the look in his son's eyes, wanting to be able to do something for someone who was just now living into something that he dealt with for his entire life, right? Up to the age of 15, his whole life, he dealt with this. Somebody else is just living into it. He wants to support them, wants them to know that they're not alone, but he can't do it himself. So in order for him to participate in this five-mile fundraising fun run, his dad is going to have to run with him. And his dad is going to have to push him wheelchair. When Dick first told the story, and it's all over the place, right? It's been told, I don't know how many times. When he was first telling the story, he said, you know, we didn't have um, those kinds of wheelchairs that are made for running and for somebody to run behind and push. We just had a regular wheelchair. You know, it was a, it was a most uh, cost-effective wheelchair we, we could get at the time. And he said, but we, I couldn't look into the eyes of my son and not go and do this. And so I said, yes, absolutely, I will. He said he trained just a little bit, but not nearly enough. Not nearly enough for a five-mile run when he hadn't been running at all anyway, but also trying to push someone for five miles in a wheelchair. He said, I was, I was woefully unprepared, but there was no way we were not going to finish that run. He said, we got across the finish line. We were nowhere near the front. We barely made it. I barely survived. And he said, when I got done, I was, I was ecstatic that we were able to do this in spite of the fact 
that I was incredibly exhausted. He said, but I was also really glad that I was never going to have to do this again. And then he said, I went around and saw my son, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, Dad, that is that running with you is the only time in my life I've ever felt like I was free of this chair. Dick said when he, when he said that, I knew in my heart, I knew in that moment, I knew in my heart that that was not, if I had anything to do with it, that would not be the last time. They uh, lived, Dick lived, Rick lived outside of Boston. And by the time they stopped doing this together, they had run in over 20 marathons and triathlons with Dick pushing Rick every single step of the way. Some of the most powerful forms of courage are not always the most obvious ones. For instance, the, the courage to show up and go the distance is one of, I think, the most powerful forms of courage that anybody can step into. The courage to show up. 90% of life is just showing up, right? The courage to show up is one thing. The courage to go the distance is another. Because the courage to go the distance is the courage to say, I voluntarily, I am yours and you are mine. And I will share, I will share your burden. I will walk this road together with you. It is a courage to be able to look at someone whom God has given you, right? I firmly believe that when we talk about stewardship, one of the thing, one of the parts of stewardship that's been missed too often by the church over the years is that we are stewards of the relationships that we've been gifted by God with. The other people in my life and in your life are, pe- are gifts to us. The relationships are gifts to us that we're called to be good stewards of. The courage to show up and go the distance is the courage to say voluntarily, I am yours and you are mine. Your burdens will be my burdens. And to be able to say, I love this line from the Lord of the Rings, that I may not be able to carry your burden, but in the moments when you need it most, I can carry you. It is the courage to step up and say, even though the road ahead of us is a difficult one, even though showing up And going the distance is going to require that I sacrifice. You know why? Because nobody ever needs you to show up. Nobody ever needs you to go the distance at a good time. The people in my life, the people in your life, always need us to show up, to be there, to go the distance at a time when there's something else or a bunch of something else's that are also important. To show up and go the distance is to live a love that is sacrificial by its very nature. To say, I am yours, you are mine. I am going to uh, carry your burdens and when necessary, if you need it, if you allow it, I may not be able to carry those, but I will carry you. I may not be able to go to take care of all your burdens, but I can push you. I may not be able to carry all your burdens, but I can walk together with you so you're not carrying those burdens alone. It is the courage to not just show up, to go the distance. So that that person carrying that burden, whether you're walking that road with them, or whether you're carrying them when they can't carry their burden and you can't carry their burden, the courage to show up and go the distance is the commitment 
to be fully present. And it's not, it's not the only way that works out. Because sometimes, see, we don't go through life alone. We go through life. We're, we're made by our very nature. No matter whether you fall on the extroverted or introverted sides of the relational spectrum. My family and I, uh, we talk about this often because we're a mix of those things. Because early in my life, when I took those personality tests, I tested, and I'm not kidding, just way off the charts to the introverted side. Um, I've almost done a 180 probably in the last 10 years, I would say. So we talk about those kinds of things a lot. And it doesn't, I'm telling, I know from my own experience, it doesn't matter which side of that spectrum you fall on. We are relational by our nature. We are people who are made to go through life together. We are made to support and to be supported, which means that the courage to show up and the courage to go the distance does mean that when I do that, I walk the road together with you that you're walking. I am yours. You are mine. I may not be able to carry you or your burden, but I can carry you. I'm voluntarily making your burden my burden because you've invited me and allowed me to do that together with you. But it also means that sometimes the shoe is on the other foot. That means that a part of life is not just showing up and going the distance and having that courage, but also having the courage to let somebody else show up and go the distance with you. To know in those moments when the burden you're carrying is a burden that is too heavy for you to carry alone or a burden that you shouldn't have to carry alone. And that sometimes when that burden is yours and yours alone to carry. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. When that burden is yours and yours alone to carry, that doesn't mean that no one else can be there for you or with you. It's in those moments when you need to have the courage to allow somebody to either walk with you or to carry you when they can't carry your burden. We do that for each other. It's one of the most powerful types of courage. Here's another one. I was sitting in my office one day in a different church. The story that I'm about to tell you is a story that I have received permission to tell. I asked for it many years ago, and I've been uh, given that permission. And I think that's important because unless you're one of my children who will make it into every sermon, I'll always ask your permission before I tell your stories. I was sitting in my office, different church many years ago, early in my ministry. You know, you, go, you take a lot of uh, counseling courses as a part of your seminary education, but ministers aren't counselors by our nature, right? And a lot of the courses that we take in, in, in that capacity are really more related to crisis intervention which means that a lot of my role, while ministers provide spiritual care and counseling as part of what we do, in a time of crisis, one of the things that I do, one of the things that we do, is to be there, to care, to love, but also to help to identify what other resources and support systems would be helpful. And so I'm sitting there, and a man from my church walks into my office and sits down in the, the chair across from my desk, 
shut the door when he came in. I asked him how he was doing, obvious that he wanted to talk about something, you know, and so I started the conversation, said, hey, how, how are you doing? I didn't even hardly get that out of my mouth when he started to tell me the story. He said I was probably in, um, said, I don't know, first grade, kindergarten, somewhere around there. When I was uh, sitting there one day, and I was eating lunch, um, he said, I had a sandwich and I had a glass of milk. And the glass of milk was, was in a it was in a glass. And he said, I reached up to grab my sandwich. I was eating on a, on a tray. He said, I reached up to grab my sandwich. My hand hit the glass. And the glass wobbled, and I, before I couldn't do anything. It happened too fast. It fell over, and it hit the coffee table, and it shattered. And glass and milk went everywhere. And I was just listening. I talk to a lot of people all day, every day, but it's not every day that somebody just comes in, sits down, and starts telling a story. And as he's telling the story, the, the, the weight of the air in the room changes. So he said after the glass broke, said my dad walked across the room and came up to me and slapped me right across the face. And he said, it, you know, it, I, it hit hard. Like, I, like it hurt, but, and it, you know, it moved me. But he said, after, after it happened, all I, all, I was, I, all I could do was sit there. He said, I didn't even cry. I had, I had no idea what to do. And he said that was the first of many First of many times where something like that would happen, he said there were a couple of instances. He didn't tell me all of everything, but he said there were a couple of instances where if one circumstance or another had been different, he said, I'm not even sure I would be alive right now. And I was getting ready to care. So the thing is that we don't have experiences that allow us to be able to easily identify with the experiences of every other person, especially when those experiences are traumatic. We don't always have experiences that help us to be able to identify with exactly what somebody else has experienced. But even if I can't identify, even if you cannot exactly identify with what somebody else has experienced, with the story they're telling you, it's still easy to care. Most of the time, in circumstances where we've gone through something difficult and people uh, say things that sound like cliches, they're saying, and you've done it too, and you've heard people who hear the cliches, because when you go through a traumatic event, you hear a lot of them, and people will say things like, I can't even stand to hear one more of, I'm so sorry this happened to you, or something like that. And the truth is, that even in the cliche, whether, no matter what we say, what we're communicating is, I care and I love you. 
So I opened my mouth to care. But I didn't get a chance to say anything. Because he started talking again. So we're sitting there. He's just told me this story. And he said, Pastor, I am so afraid. I said, why? He said, because I am a father now. And he said, obviously over the years I've tried to read some. And I sat in this counseling course where the, the professor that was teaching it, it was his last class before he retired, and he had taught my father in, in his very first class when he first started his career as a professor, like 30 some odd years before. And I remember a couple of the things that he said. Like he said uh, over and over, he said, we, can, we all tend to fall into this trap where when we're struggling to heal with something, usually something that's happened to us, we'll fall into this trap of believing that somehow we are a problem, that we are the problem. He said, remember, find ways to reinforce this over and over and over and over again in any way that you can that's healthy. He said, help people to remember that you are not the problem, the problem is the problem. You are not a problem. The problem is the problem. That's one of the things that he said. Another one of the things that he said was, be careful of dismantling somebody's coping mechanisms before they're ready because people have coping mechanisms for a reason. When you walk a healing journey together with someone else, it has to be at their invitation and their pace. Regardless of whether or not you think, he said, you know, what they need, and if they just did this one thing, they'd be happier. Remember that this is happening at their pace. They need to walk forward at a pace that is healthy for them, not a pace that is healthy for you. Or feels that way for you. Because the healing journey is about them. And so I, I said, what are you afraid of? And he said, I've, I've read about this over the years, and he said, I've, you know, I've thought about it from time to time, but I started to get more concerned as I got closer to being a father myself. He said, because I've read so many times that children, of a, uh, children who have suffered abuse grow up to abuse other, other people. He said, I've read that a lot. And I don't, he said, I don't want to do that. I am so afraid, he said, that there's going to be a circumstance that triggers me and I'm going to end up doing exactly what my dad did. He said, I, I can't stand the thought of doing something like that to my children. Well, I'm going to fast forward, but it begins with, we talked. I did the best I could to care, to listen, to encourage him to begin to talk with someone more qualified than I am, which he did. He did go talk to a counselor. And I would continue to check in with him, pray with him, pray for him, continue to check in, as, because one of the things that a support partner does is to see if there is a way to be supportive while someone is walking the healing journey that you may not be directly involved in. And so I would continue to check in with him, and he was continuing to meet with his counselor. It was a little over a year later that I was sitting in my office, and he walked in, shut the door, and sat down again. And I had a pretty good idea what he wanted to talk about. 
I was about to ask him how he was doing when he opened his mouth and said, it happened. I said, Pastor, it happened. And I said, what, what happened? And he said um, to my son, I was like, in, his son was in like first grade or something at the time. Said he just decided he wanted to be helpful. And, uh, and so, you know, we were, we were all at home. And he didn't, he didn't ask. He didn't say anything. He just got it in his mind that he wanted to do something kind. So he walked into the um, kitchen, and he was going to unload the dishwasher. And he said, uh, you know, he opened. I, I wasn't in there yet. He said, but, uh, you know, he must have opened it up and, and pulled the tray out. He said, but the problem is, Pastor, that we have one of those dishwashers that, like, heats everything up you know, when it dries, and if you don't let it sit for a minute, those dishes can get really, really hot. He said, my son didn't know that, and I, I, we didn't know he was going to go in and, and do that, and so um, he said, I, I rounded the corner just in time where he, he must have reached in and grabbed a plate, got it up to about this, this high before the pain of the heat of that plate registered, and I, I, got, I walked around the corner just in time to watch him drop the plate and shattered all over the kitchen floor. And he said it was not exactly the same thing, but it was still the breaking of a, you know, breaking of a dish. Mine was a glass. This was a plate. And he said, and, and, and I, I'm standing there, and I'm watching this happen, and he said, I always wondered what it would be that would trigger me. And it turns out that it was the sound of, you know, that, that uh, breaking dish. It just, in that moment, in the time he said that it took him, my son, to look from the plate and look up at me. And the time it took him to look from the, the plate on the ground up to me, he said, I relived that whole experience again. I don't know how many times. And he said, my son looked at me and he had this like terror in his eyes, you know. And I'm just waiting for what I'm afraid is going to be a part of a story I don't want to hear. He said, my son looked up at me and said, you know what, I know it happened fast, but he said, Pastor, I don't know how many times I relived that story before he looked up at me. He said, the thing is, the second his eyes met mine, I knew exactly what to do. He said, I walked over and I, I reached down for him. I picked him up still small enough, you know, I can do that, picked him up, put him in my arms, and I looked at him, and he was afraid, and I looked down at the plate, and you know, all the different dishes in the dishwasher, and I grabbed one, made sure it wasn't too hot, picked it up, and I held it up, and he was looking at me, I was looking at him, and while I was still looking at him, he said I dropped it on the ground, and it shattered, and he said my son looked down at it, and then looked up at me, and I went and grabbed another plate, made sure it wasn't too hot, gave it to him and said, it's your turn. And he said, my son got the biggest grin on his face and he dropped it and he said, then something awful happened. He said, we realized that this was way more fun than we ever thought it was going to be and we broke all the rest of the dishes in the dishwasher and I had to go buy a whole new dish set for the, for the house. One of the most powerful 
forms of courage is the courage to heal from the trauma of your past. You are under no obligation to be what anybody else has told you you're going to be. You are under no obligation to be what anybody else has told you you have to be. You are under no obligation to be any version of what you're afraid you will be. You're under no obligation to even be the uh, person uh, tomorrow that is the same person you are today. When you embrace the courage to heal from the trauma of your past, that's a difficult road to begin to walk. And here's the thing. While the, tra the trauma, of, trauma of your past, trauma of our past, trauma of your past, is most likely, it's not always the case, but most likely it is a trauma that was inflicted upon you. A trauma inflicted upon you by someone else or something else, right? By another person or another group of people or an organization or a culture. That the trauma of your past is most likely a trauma that has been inflicted upon you. That's not always 100% the case, but most of the time it is, right? And so when you begin to consider whether or not to begin the healing process, one of the truths about beginning that process is that while, and if nobody has ever said to you before that you do not deserve to have endured the trauma that you endured, you don't and you didn't. And I hope that somebody has said to you that whatever it was that happened shouldn't have happened. But the thing is that while in most cases the trauma of your past is inflicted upon you by someone, something else, the decision to heal has to begin with you. You're the one chooses when you'll heal, how you'll heal. The trauma, in most cases, was inflicted upon you. You didn't have most of us for that, the kinds of traumas that you're thinking about didn't have anything to do or want anything to do with what was inflicted upon us. But the decision to heal is yours. So when you do that, that often involves when you embrace the courage to choose that you're going to begin the process of healing from the trauma of your past. Which is a very possible thing to do, but it involves choosing carefully how you're going to begin to take your steps. You won't know everything until you begin to walk in that direction. Sometimes that involves finding people who can walk that road with you. Sometimes it involves finding people who, while they walk the road, like a counselor or a physician or whomever it is that might be an appropriate and qualified person to help you to begin to process what you're ready to process because you need to process what you're ready to process at your pace, together with someone. And sometimes that may be a trusted friend or dialogue partner who can also walk that road together with you. And when the burden becomes too heavy for you to bear, that is a person who has said, I am yours and you are mine. And so I will carry you for a bit if I can't carry the burden for you until you can walk again on your own. The courage to heal from the trauma of your past is one of the most powerful forms of courage 
Because when you heal from the trauma of your past, when you begin the process of healing from the trauma of your past, in addition to the healing that is a part of that road, that is a part of that journey, you also show other people who are watching, even at a distance, that hope is a thing because healing is possible. I'm going, to stop. I'm going to end with this one. I, um, and there's probably several versions of this. This last one I'm going to do today. I was, uh, I was actually in first or second grade, I think, when this happened. We went over to the family member of a, uh, or a church family. We went over the, to the house of a, a family in our church. They were having like a cookout or a picnic or something like that. We'd been over there before, so I knew that they had a basketball goal out in their driveway. And really wanted to play basketball. I was really bad at it. I was terrible at basketball. I've always been, always, always been terrible at basketball, but I liked it. I enjoyed it, loved to play it. Um, my dad played basketball in high school. He was not terrible at basketball. Unfortunately, that did not rub off on me. And so I uh, wanted to do this. I was talking, I wouldn't shut up about it. You know, I was talking about how excited I was to go over to their house, play basketball in their driveway. Dad, can we do this? Dad, you know, I had to ask him at least, I don't know, a couple thousand times. Like, yes, Matt, we'll play basketball in the driveway. It'll be fine, we'll have a good time. We get over there. We park, we're walking in, there's the driveway with the basketball goal. I'm like, Dad, can we do it now? You know, Dad's like, no, we need to go inside, say hi, we gotta eat. And so for the rest of most of that evening, I'm like every five minutes, I'm asking Dad if we can play basketball. Finally, all, all the guys, the men, decide they're gonna go out and play a game. So they go outside and they get ready and they divide up teams and whatever they're gonna do. And I'm like, hey, can I be a part of this? And Dad's like, no, um, can't be a part of this. I don't want you to get hurt, you know, too, too many people, too much bigger than you are. And um, I'm like, okay, so I go sit down. I'm a little dejected, but it's all right. And so this goes on. The game probably lasted, I don't know, 45 minutes, but I was uh, in like the first grade. So that 45 minutes lasted like 150 years. And so I'm sitting there and I'm trying to, you know, like calm my anxiety and be as patient as possible, which was not a thing. And I keep asking dad, can I join in? Dad, can I join in? Dad, can I join? Finally, dad gets frustrated and just kind of snaps at me and tells me we're probably not gonna be able to do this today because we're gonna have to leave soon. I'm not gonna be able to play. Well, I'm crushed. You know. My first grade heart is broken. This is on a Saturday. I go to church Sunday. On Monday, I am walking to school, and I, my friend Greg hooks up with me. We walk to school. We go to school. I'm walking home from school, and I turn the corner at 95th and Row Avenue. We actually, um, last weekend when we were in Kansas City, Kate and I stopped by the house that I grew up in. It was great to see it again. You know, my dad's uh, fingerprints are all over that house. Dad was, uh, he liked to do a lot of projects everywhere around the house. Um, it turns out that my skill set was in holding things while dad went to the hardware store to pick up whatever he forgot. Um, dad's skill set was in forgetting that he left me there holding things while he went to the hardware store, right? And so it's just, it's just a thing. He did a whole bunch of things, poured concrete pads, built a gazebo, all kinds of stuff. And so I turn the corner, walking down, and I can see that dad's in the driveway. The house is just like three or four houses down. So dad's in the driveway and he's got a whole bunch of stuff out. And I'm like, oh no, my first thought is what am I gonna have to hold today, you know? But I get up there and as I get closer, I see that there is a pole and a basketball goal. And dad is in the process of getting ready to set the pole into the ground. 
And I, I walk up and I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? And he said, well, I went out today, took the day off from work, and he said I went out and bought a basketball goal so you and I could have that game that I promised you. And I, was, I didn't know what to say. But he stopped. The, the hole had been dug. You know, the pole was in, in the hole. It was kind of leaning a little bit because he hadn't said it yet. Um, he just let it lean there, and he came over to me, got down on my level, looked me in the eyes and said, Matt, I am so sorry for the way that I treated you the other night during the basketball game. He said, I, I saw how much it hurt you when I snapped at you. He said, I never should have done that. I should have stopped and, and brought you into the game. I should have stayed and played basketball with you. He said, there's so many things I could have done, but the thing that I did hurt you. And I'm, I'm so sorry about that. I hope you can forgive me. I did didn't even know for sure how to respond and was still processing it when dad made me go over and hold the pole while he was sitting in the ground. Turns out that we weren't the best of handy men. Um, you know, a basketball goal should be right at about 10 feet. This one was like 10 feet, seven inches, and I already wasn't good at basketball, so it just made it more difficult. But I can't tell you um, how many times my dad and I and other people from around the neighborhood or other people who played basketball in that driveway over the years that I was growing up. I had about another 10 years after that there in that house. When Kate and I went back, the basketball goal was gone, the pole was gone, but I could still look in that driveway and remember playing one-on-one -on -one with my dad at any given weeknight after he got home from work and I got home from school. I think that one of the most powerful forms of courage is the courage to apologize. Because the courage to apologize brings with it a humility that itself teaches a valuable lesson. When you apologize to somebody else, when you apologize to somebody else, you're saying a few things to them. You're saying, you're more important to me than my own need to be right. When you apologize to somebody else, you're saying you matter to me more than uh, my trying to save face in the midst of something that I've recognized that I've done that hurts you. You've heard me say over and over again that even when we have the best of intentions, we can still cause harm. So there's a lot that is communicated and it starts with you're important to me. You're more important to me than my need to be right. You're more important to me than whatever it was that caused the, the issue that resulted in the hurt that is a result of what I did. You're important to me. But there's a lot more that's communicated there, especially if the person that you're apologizing to is a child or a youth for whom you have some responsibility. Because when that happens, you're teaching them some other things. Not just you're important to me and I love you, which is a valuable lesson in and of itself. If that were the only lesson, it would be worth it. But that's not what you're teaching them. You're also teaching them things like, it is okay to apologize. Apologizing is a strength. It's not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength and a strength that is born in love. You're teaching them that to apologize, even if this is not taught verbally, be surprised how much children pick up from your example and the example you're giving in an apology like that is that you have self-reflected 
a healthy person spends time self-reflecting on their own behavior. And in that self-reflection, you determined that, that there were some things that you did that caused harm, and you cared enough to choose to try to repair some of that harm by building or rebuilding a bridge of love. Having the courage to apologize teaches, especially children and youth, but anybody who gets to be a part, who gets to be the beneficiary of an example like that, that you don't have to be right to be loved, that it's all right to admit when you are wrong. It's all right to say even the wrong about what I have done, wrong about what I have believed. It's all right to say I am sorry for what I thought and said before because I was speaking from a less informed place before and I've learned since then. I don't know what to expect from us, from people, other than that we're willing to learn and grow and as we learn and grow, we change. It's all right to change and it's all right to give an example of what it means to apologize and say, you are more important to me than my perceived need to save face. To be honest, I think that the most powerful form of courage is just the courage to love. Most of these things can be summed up that way. The courage to love, the courage to show up, to go the distance, to heal or start the process of healing from the trauma of your past, to be willing to apologize, to speak love into the heart of somebody else, into the life of someone else. The courage to love is perhaps the most powerful courage when you love, when you choose to show up and love without an agenda. We don't love other people so that they will change. It's not love. The good news of God and Jesus Christ is not just that God loves you because God does, but it is that God's love is not performative. One of the most powerful things you can do is choose not only to embrace that love and let it heal you because it will. It will begin that, help begin that process of healing you but also to share a love that is not performative. It doesn't require that you do this in order to be loved. When you love with that kind of love, there's a natural healing that begins in the life of another person, period, because that example is quite a bit more rare than we give it credit for. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful today for the people who have had the courage to love us. We're grateful today for the people who have had the courage to embrace your love and begin a healing process of their own. So that by healing what has caused them pain, they stop the process of bleeding on people who did not cut them. We're grateful for the people who've chosen to show up and who have 
chosen to go the distance to say voluntarily that you're mine and I'm yours, that I may not be able to carry your burden for you, but I can carry you. We're grateful for the people who have loved us enough not only to offer an apology when an apology is a way to rebuild a bridge and to communicate love, but who've had the wisdom by doing so to teach us that it is a healing thing, it's a positive thing in any relationship to be willing to apologize. To help us to learn that that gesture in and of itself is a healing process. So give us the courage. Give us the courage to love as we are loved. Give us the courage to consider the possibility of beginning the process of healing. Maybe by embracing that love and together with you and together with people whom we trust sitting down to determine what another step might look like. As we seek to have the courage, God, to show up and be there to go the distance in the lives of other people. God, help us to have the courage to love without an agenda. We ask in your name.